As we come to our time in God's Word, I would love to have you take your Bibles and turn with me, please, to 2 Peter chapter 3. I know you thought you were headed to Isaiah. Well, we will. We'll be on our way to Isaiah shortly, but uh, for the moment, we are going to go to 2 Peter 3. And uh, let me just say a word about why. Uh, one of the things I, I love between uh, studying Old Testament and New Testament is to see the correspondence between the two. And uh, Isaiah, the prophet, and Peter, the follower of Jesus, writing at this later time, separated by about 800 years, the text we're going to see today in Isaiah, I think, is talking about the same event that Peter describes here in this New Testament text. So I want to go backwards then when we head toward Isaiah, but uh, that's our plan today. As you look at your sermon notes for just a moment, you see a couple of elements of review and reminders of where we've been, but uh, judgment, judgment is the topic today. Wow. Uh, Sobering, a sobering text. It's intended to be that. And uh, boy, the the, the justice of God, the righteousness of God overshadows all that we're going to read today. But I want to to pray that God will help us, and then we'll read this text in 2 Peter and head right back to Isaiah chapter 24 and and look together at that. But pray with me, please, that God would help us and and use his word, if you'd join me, please. Father, we are aware of, of our dependence on you today. As we open the scriptures, we are counting on the work of the Spirit of God in every single one of us to enliven your word to us and to help us to hear, really to hear, not only with our our physical eyes, but with the eyes of our heart, and then to, to, to understand and respond and to love your word and to love you. So, Father, would you, would you use this time in a way that only you can do? This process of, of, of immersing ourselves in the scriptures is not a a process just of people, of human effort. It is a spiritual work, and so we ask of you uh, to do your work today in us. Help us now, whatever our need, um, even if it's something completely different from what we will study together. Our Father, we give you this time and ourselves as those who would worship together in your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So Second Peter 3 now. Um, It's describing a season of judgment that for us, of course, is yet future. Uh, We look ahead and we see all kinds of things, but this this final day of judgment of the earth and the universe is so described. Uh, Elements of revelation we'll touch base on as well today, Um, back and forth a bit between Isaiah and New Testament texts. But I want us to hear uh, this description and then and then allow it to springboard us back to Isaiah 24, okay? So God's word then, 2 Peter 3, verses 1 to 13. Here is what we we read. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets. May I say, Isaiah is part of that and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago 
And the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed, or your translation might say laid bare, since all these things are thus to be dissolved. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for or looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Judgment. Man, the universe, the heavenly bodies burned up, exposed. They'll melt as they burn. Will this happen? Well, yes, as a matter of fact, exactly as written, the word of God. So it's looking to a day of judgment, and as he said at the beginning, and we noted, this is built on what Peter calls the predictions of the holy prophets. Peter, good Jewish guy, he knew the Old Testament. That was their Bible. So he's saying that what he's describing here in Second Peter is based on Old Testament writings. I would suggest 800 years before we would come to Isaiah 24, if you would go there. I'm confident Peter and John, of course, as we'll read from him in a bit, they knew exactly what, what Isaiah wrote in chapter 24. Now, as we come to this text, you will remember that we have just finished looking at what is called the Book of the Nations. Now, I'm looking at the section here in your notes called Today's Text. The Book of the Nations, chapters 13 to 23, in which there was judgment laid upon judgment. And in those situations, those chapters, judgments directed at specific nations or cities that were representative of nations. So judgment on Moab and judgment on Damascus representing a certain group and Tyre. They were, they were describing specific places of judgment. But this changes when you come to chapter 24. No longer are specific nations or cities called out here, the subject of the judgment 18 times is described as the earth, and in several places, the world. And the scope, as you will very much get a feel for as we read this, is describing not just a situational judgment, uh, as some of the other elements that we've read before, but a worldwide, cataclysmic, end-of-it-all judgment. All right? So uh, I would say this as well. All those other elements of judgment, judgment on a nation or a city or so on, I believe even from the very beginning when there were judgments localized, 
all of those were pointing toward a greater and final day of judgment described here, described in Second Peter, yet future to us. Okay? Do I believe that's going to happen? I absolutely do. Yes, I do. So let's take a look at this together. Now, as we read Second Peter 3, 1 to 13, so here, 1 to 13 as well. So God's word through the prophet Isaiah, uh, chapter 24, starting verse 1. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. He will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants, and it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the slave, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the creditor, so with the debtor. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. There's your assurance The Lord has spoken. The earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. The highest people of all the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants. Now watch this for. Here's a reason. There are three reasons given. The explanation for judgment. For they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, and broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, therefore a curse devours the earth and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched and few men are left. The wine mourns, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourines is stilled. The noise of the jubilant has ceased. The mirth of the lyre, which is a, a stringed instrument, all right? The mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that no one can enter. There is an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered into ruins. For thus it shall be in the midst of the earth. Among the nations, as when an olive tree is beaten, as at the gleaning, when the grape harvest is done. And I'll stop at that point. Those latter two symbols, very understood in an agrarian society, it's describing the end of a harvest where nothing's left. At the end of gleaning. So harvest, and then gleaning, the gleaners taking what was left from the harvesters, and then when they're done, when they're done, it's, we're bankrupt. There's nothing left. So this, this broader text then, verses 1 to 13, I have on your study notes under a heading, specifically, God has the authority to judge his creation. I think that's the, that's the idea behind this bigger section. You'll see I have three sections here laid out. We'll spend more of our time in the first, uh, verses 14 to 16a, I think, is a unit, and then the middle of verse 16 to the end of the chapter, its conclusion. God has the authority to judge his creation. Uh, we want to establish that first of all. If you look at verse 1, that reminder is, is, comes to us right out of the gate. Behold the Lord, or look, look, God is doing this. The first two words in Hebrew, look, God. Look what God is doing. What is described here in this earthwide catastrophe is not the natural result of things. You wouldn't look at this and say, you know, sometimes things happen. Volcanoes blow up and there's tsunamis and, and just natural. Event. No, no. 
this chapter is not about natural events. This is about God actively judging the earth. Behold, the Lord does this. And throughout this whole chapter, you are well to remember, God has the authority to do this. He has the authority to hold his creation accountable to himself. There's no doubt about this. God does this. Uh, so, so he's not trying to do- dodge. He's not trying to blame it on other. No, right away, God says, I will do this. The active agent in creation. I mentioned already the scope. Yes, earthwide. And you see in verse two, this interesting back and forth, it's establishing something, specifically the people, the priests, the slaves, the master. It's saying at this moment of judgment, it doesn't matter if you're the rich and the famous. It doesn't matter your position. If you have buildings named after you or a portfolio, you know, the, the three inches thick, it doesn't matter on that day. Everyone stands equally accountable before the God who is that person's creator. Everyone is equal, but I'm important. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Get in line, Right? Verse 4, similarly, the highest people of the earth languish. On that day, how much you have, your cool accomplishments, your resume matter nothing. Standing before a God who judges, a holy God, as we sang earlier today. So verse 2 is very clear. Verse 1, God is doing it. Verse 2, everyone is equally accountable before this God. Station in life. And then we come to verses 5, and then the therefore in verse 6. And I want, to, I want to spend a few minutes on this. The reasons, the reasons for this cataclysmic judgment are given then in verse 5. They are three. Transgression against the laws. And I think here, as you deal with language and so on, the terms that are used, the, the, the idea here is, is the written uh, laws of God, those things that are inscribed, which you'd say the word of God. They have transgressed what specifically God has said. They have ignored it, these people who are now being judged. Transgression against God's authoritative laws. Second, they have violated the statutes. And the idea of violated here is, is altering or replacing God's statutes, violating them. Um, as I put there in front of you, altering or replacing what God has said with what you think, my truth, suddenly has now replaced what God has said. They have violated, they've twisted it. It's gone from what God said to here's what I think or our cool little uh, symbols that we use in my humble opinion, right? I-M-H-O. Well, of course, who cares what you think? Every time I say that, I am drawn to a Peanuts cartoon that I read years ago and it stayed in my mind, for some weird reason. You know how that is? You just, it just comes back. But I read it uh, a long time ago, and it was long, one of those longer ones in a book, and it went something like this. Lucy, of course, who has the bigger mouth of the, of the crowd, she goes to one of the characters and says, do you think I'm bossy? And the person says, yes, I think you're bossy. And she says, well, who cares what you think? And they tumble over backwards, <laughs> right? So she goes one to the other, and they answer the same, and they suffer the same fate. Till so she comes to Linus, who's got his blanket, and he, he, she says to him, um, do you think I'm bossy? And he's watched, so he's smarter now. He says, wait right here. And he backs up a little ways and says, yes, I think you're very bossy. And then she responds, of course, who cares what you think, but he doesn't tumble over. It's kind of fun. Why does that jump to my mind when I... Well, they're violating the statutes. They're replacing my opinion 
And by the way, no, no offense intended to those present. Who cares what you think? Right? So a person who says, yeah, but, but I, I just don't believe this. There. Guess what? There is coming a day when they will believe it. And on that day, it will be too late. So to say I don't believe it or I have my own truth is not to, to escape this moment. It is to live in denial of it. See? So if you hear, you hear even now, hearing this text, to say, yeah, well, I, you know, I don't think so. Uh, wrong, dear friend. There will be a day. There will be a day. Paul, in a text we'll read in a bit, speaks of that day, a day when all the world will be held accountable to God. So, so don't miss it. Now, the third element then, breaking God's everlasting covenant. They've broken. What an interesting expression. The everlasting covenant. There's discussion about what this is. It seems to be a specific thing. And I put on your sermon notes here something for us to think about. A number of Bible scholars see this as a reference to God's moral laws that apply to everyone and are written on our consciences. Okay? I want to think about this with you. Uh, when you read, and I give you one of the texts here, we're not going to turn to that one, but the next we will. In Genesis 9, verse 6, you find this conversation taking place in the uh, end of chapter 8 and into verse, uh, chapter 9. This is the end of, of Noah's flood, okay? Noah's flood, chapter 6, 7, and 8. You get to chapter 9. Uh, this, is, this is what you call the Noahic covenant, God's covenant with Noah when they came off the ark, you remember? This is where God says, um, never again am I going to flood the earth like this and judge the world in this manner, though he will judge it again by fire, but not by water. And then in chapter 9, verse 6, he says, whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God he has created him. Isn't that interesting? He's describing what we're celebrating today, in a sense, the sanctity of human life. Now, of course, that is... Uh, not speaking of death in war or justified, uh, a justified killing. You understand? It's describing murder. Your perceived thought, your right, you might say, to kill somebody simply because they're dumb and ugly, you think. So it's describing murder. And it's saying this is wrong because human life is precious. Human life is valuable from its beginning to its end. So you don't go off killing people. So it's describing well before the law. You understand, Moses' law, long before the law given to the people of Israel, way at the very beginning, one of God's moral laws that apply to all people at all time. Don't wantonly kill people. Don't do that. Now, I mentioned here that the Bible describes God's moral laws as something written on the consciences of people, even those who do not have in their possession the written word of God. This, of course, heads into the discussion of how God can hold the world accountable to him. People sometimes say, but what if they haven't heard? Well, part of that answer is what we're going to look at right now. And you need to think about this as you join me. I'm going to turn back to the book of Romans or turn forward, and I'm going to actually go to Romans 1. I didn't list this on your sermon notes, but it's where I want to start. I want to go to Romans 1 first, because I want to deal with this issue of God's moral law. They, what, again, the idea of God's everlasting covenant that he intended for all people of all times, and in this regard, things he has written on the hearts of people. So you come to Romans 1 and verse 18. <clears throat> uh, Paul says this, 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's a very significant uh, expression here because the idea is that the truth is active. It is not passive. And to hold it down, to deny it, takes effort. Okay? It's like a puppy under a blanket. And it's trying to get out. And, and you have to press it down. You've got you to work to keep the puppy under the blanket. So the people here described are suppressing the truth. They are taking effort to say, no, I don't want to believe that. No, I'm going to deny that. <clears throat> They're suppressing the truth. So you go to verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Wow. That's pretty clear. It's plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Here's the conclusion. So they are without excuse. Isn't that interesting? For although they knew God, that is, they knew of his existence, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Okay, this is describing what we call general revelation as opposed to special revelation, the written word of God. General revelation, the things that can be known about God or should be known about him, it's pretty clear through what has been made Enough to hold people accountable, please get this, enough to hold people accountable, but not enough to save them, okay? But enough to say, here are some things you did know. Don't you tell me you knew nothing. Don't you tell me that, because you did. Now, go even further, chapter three, same topic, uh, sorry, chapter two, chapter two, starting verse 14. And again, watch it carefully, what Paul says For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, stop for a moment, the term Gentiles, you've heard us say this in preaching, it routinely translates the Greek word ethne or ethnos, which speaks of the ethnic groups of the world, okay? You could, could, as in this case, rightly translate this, this, the nations. It's talking about the non-Jewish people. The Jewish people had the written word of God. When the nations, then, who do not have the written law, by nature do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though, even though they do not have the law. They show the work of the law is written on their hearts. Man, that's a big assertion. It's written on their hearts. Well, their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or else excuse them. On that day when, Paul says, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by, by Christ Jesus. He speaks then in verse 15. That's our key phrase. The law is written on their hearts and their conscience bears witness of this. Now, if you follow American history, you know that John Locke and his understanding of natural law, which talks about this, was on the minds of the framers of our constitution and those who founded our country. So you will hear phrases like this in the founding documents of our country. Uh, You'll hear words about nature and nature's God. Okay, that is an expression about natural law. John Locke spoke or wrote about that, one of the big proponents of that, saying there are certain things written on the hearts of every person, and to be a human is to believe this. Now, 
a, a book I'm going to refer to in a, in a, in a minute in another vein, uh, Francis Schaeffer's book, Death in the City, written in 1969. Uh, very fascinating to read now, a generation later. Uh, this book is dealing with the book of Lamentations, Jeremiah the prophet, prophet weeping over the destruction of a different city, in this case, Jerusalem. But one of the things that he comments on here uh, bears on all of this. He describes um, how God's law draws us, makes us accountable. And I'm going to go to a, a section right here. Um, he speaks of how anthropologists, in, in looking around the world, find certain things to be true of all people in all places. Okay, uh, specifically, as, as Schaefer would draw it out, uh, to use his terms, he talks about people thinking, wherever they are, in antitheses, meaning things are hot and cold, things are tall or short, things are good or bad. These are c- categories that people, wherever they are, think in. That there's not been a society found that does not have categories of good and evil, and his point, of course, would be, as with other people writing on anthropological discoveries, that wherever you have people, to be a people, right, is to instinctively know that there are some things right and some things wrong. Now, you might codify it different, but you know the categories. There's good and bad. Some, some places you'd say, well, if the guy steals your pig, you know, off with his head. But, but if he doesn't steal your pig and off with his head, you're in trouble, you see. There's a category that defines Something called right and wrong. And Schaefer would make the point, as would others, that's the moral law of God written on the heart of every person who's ever breathed. There are these categories, inescapably, that describe a human. I I think that's what's going on here. They have violated uh, what God has written on their hearts. And really, Romans 1, 2, and 3 say a lot about this. There are things God has placed in the hearts of people. They may not understand everything, may not even believe it. One example that Schaefer gives, I found uh, very interesting in light of today's world. He describes a setting that some of you will remember who are far older than I am. Well, um, this goes back to 1960. I wasn't even born. Some of you will remember the story. Um, Back in 1960, October, Nikita Khrushchev sitting in the U.N., Right? There we go. In the UN, so at the time, someone else was speaking about the, you remember the Soviet Union at the time, Cold War, all these things going on. Uh, another speaker was talking about all the enslavement of people in the Soviet Union. Nikita Khrushchev is sitting there. He's the, yeah, I mean, he's kind of the big guy at the moment. And he's hearing his own country described as enslaving people, and he doesn't like it. Now, this is the moment where some would say he was beating his shoe on the table. There's debate about whether he actually was beating his shoe or if that was photoshopped in. Was he really just immaterial? What I'm after is what he was saying. Doesn't matter about the shoe. He was shouting, it's wrong. It's wrong to disagree. But he was using, you ready? Moral language from a naturalist, a materialist. And part of the the Soviet doctrine was, there is no God. And yet he dared to shout something was wrong. Do you see the incongruity of this? He was stealing language from the theists. He's stealing moral terms from the Bible to even shout something is wrong. How dare you think that? That's the point Francis Schaeffer is making is, he's he's using a a category that isn't his. See, 
by his own philosophy, he didn't believe there's right and wrong. People just define these terms. You make it up as you go. And if I vote that this is, that this is okay, then it is okay. So some of our current apologists, people who write, defending or explaining Christianity, talk about what Khrushchev was doing. They don't describe his, him in particular, but they're talking about how many materialists or naturalists today, people who deny the existence of God, they steal moral categories. They're stealing from us because they're calling something out as wrong when they have no basis on which to do so. To have a category called wrong, you must have an ultimate lawgiver who can make something right or wrong. Other than that, back to Lucy, you're stuck with, in my humble opinion. See, and what was the phrase? Who cares what you think? Exactly. So to have a moral category requires the existence of an ultimate lawgiver. Wow, that's fascinating. Now, my mind went to Francis Schaeffer's book. I'm heading back now to Isaiah. I know we wandered away for a moment. This came to my mind as I read verse 10 and verse 12, okay? The wasted city, desolation is left in the city. And of course, Schaefer is writing about death in the city, looking at Jerusalem, of course, that which will follow uh, Isaiah's time later, but of course precedes the, the judgment so described here in Isaiah 24. Death in the city. Uh, interesting, um, perhaps you know, uh, cities are where people are these days in increasing measure. Um, in 2008, uh, the research was done to suggest that 50% of the world's population lived in cities. You know that? And the estimate is that by 2050, 65% or more of humans will live in cities. Tokyo currently, I think the biggest, 37 million. New York, more densely populated. But Tokyo certainly, 37 million the heartland of America, fleeing to the cities, uh, typically on a coast or on water, even Chicago on water. But interesting, interesting. Now, the city that's, that's used here, verses 10 and 12, th- th- there's no specific city mentioned. The only city mentioned in this chapter is Jerusalem, verse 23, and that's headed into glory, if I may say. The, the city here, as I believe, in this term, uh, 10 and 12, it's referring to what we would often call the city of man. It's the city of man, it's mankind, and it's joyless, and it's broken. The terms here about wine running out, it isn't just about a beverage. Hey, there's a beverage shortage. Well, okay, all kinds of shortages. It isn't about that. Wine is symbolic, often in the Bible, of joy. So it's saying people who've run to the cities, they've looked for life here. I'm going to make a name. They've fled from the heartland. They've gone to the cities to get a job and fun, and where's all my people? And he says, the places where they ran the places where they ran to find life are now a place of death. Stores are shuttered. Houses are shuttered. It's broken down. God's judgment has come. The wine is out. The, the joy, verse 11, has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. Sounds to me a little bit like last summer uh, to me in downtown Seattle. But I'm taking this to be yet a future time when it is even worse. Wow. The earth itself under God's judgment. Okay, verses 14 to 16a, interesting. More we could say, I know, on all of that. 14, it says this. Now, there's a shift. They lift up their voices. 
They sing for joy. So somebody's singing. Who is it? Over the majesty of the Lord, they shout from the west. Therefore, in the east, give glory to the Lord. In the coastlands of the sea, give glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth, we hear songs of praise, of glory to the righteous one. What are they singing about? And who is this? Well, according to verse 6, there are a few left. The end of verse 6, last line. There's a few left. The Old Testament often speaks of a remnant, a righteous remnant left even after a season of judgment. Uh, Who are these people? Some of this would be answered by your understanding of end time events. Some would say, well, these are, I mean, clearly in the text, they're people who survived through the season of judgment. And um, who are those people? Did they come to Christ during a season of tribulation? as some of our eschatological uh, models would say, or was this just all of God's people and man, it gets bad and a few of them make it through? Is that the idea? I'm going to leave that for another day, understandably. But these people who are left, what are they singing about? I would suggest to you that they are singing glory and praise to God for his righteous judgment. For his righteous judgment on what? Do I base this? Well, I do want to make this little excursion. I'm aware time is flying by us. I know this. But I want to go to Revelation because I want you to hear uh, uh, some voices that you may very well one day be among. I hope so. You might start making these your memory verses because, as we'll see in a minute, I think some of these words could flow from your lips someday when you are with the Lord and watch this take place. But in Revelation 16, you find some expressions about worship of God, which, by the way, I would commend to you as a study in your spare time, read Revelation and notice what people in the presence of God praise him for. Okay, just do it. It comes down to, I think, four things. Routine, over and over again. One of them is his righteous judgment. Another is salvation. Salvation, his creation, he's the creative ability. Worthy are you, oh Lord our God, you created all that exists, chapter four, and and so on. But, But here, I want you to hear, the righteous judgment of God is praised In his presence, verse 4 of 16, the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers, springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, just are you. Do you see this? O holy one who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. They have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar, that is an inanimate object, saying, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Isn't that amazing? Keep on going. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat. And what did they do? They repented, didn't they? No, they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent nor give him glory. Imagine, keeps going. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness People gnawed their tongues in anguish and repented? No, again, cursed the God of heaven. For their pain and their sores, they did not repent of their deeds. We would like to think that in the face of judgment, people would rush to the Lord and say, forgive me for I have sinned. But instead you see here over and over again and in other voices of the prophets saying that when God's judgment is poured out, people rather shake their fist at heaven. Isn't that interesting? Wow. Chapter 19. 
I mentioned a couple weeks ago that chapter 18 of Revelation is about God's judgment on Babylon the Great, that symbol of rebellion against God from the Tower of Babel to this point in, 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 in end of the world, end of history uh, place. So Babel is being used, Babylon in this case, but Babylon the Great is judged, and now you see the praise for that event coming in chapter 19. And this is the place where I would say, I, want your, I hope that your voice is, is in this crowd. It's describing people in heaven who are, who are crying out about this. And hopefully this is you. If you know Christ is your savior, you should be among them. So memorize these verses so you are ready for that day. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out this. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just. He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cry out, hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. What are they noticing? They're watching God judge planet earth and saying, God, you are just in what you are doing. Imagine, hallelujah, hallelujah, his judgments are true and just. He is doing right. If you were a person who has ever had injustice done to you and not seen right, please know that God sees all of it. God sees all of it. Romans 3, we read, or Romans 2, where he, he will judge the secrets of men. He will. And of course, in Isaiah 24, as reflected in the book of Revelation, there will be a day of final justice. Now, come back to Isaiah for just a moment or two as we head toward a close this morning. The second half of verse 16 down to verse 23, then come under that third heading, God's judgment ends in his triumph over all wickedness. And next week, again, chapters 25 to 27, we see uh, this season of judgment meld into a season of glory. And I can hardly wait to get to that, but of course a week will come by quickly. God's judgment ends in his triumph over all wickedness. Isaiah, as we saw last week, laments in the second half of verse 16, I waste away, I waste away, woe is me. The traitors have betrayed with betrayal. The traitors have betrayed. He sees the destruction and his heart is heavy. Terror and pit and snare upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. And you see down through these verses, the earth broken in verse 19. The earth split apart, violently shaken, staggering like a drunken man, sways like a hut. Oh, on that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven. Verse 21, I take that to be angelic beings. And he will do that from his throne in heaven. And he will judge the kings of the earth on the earth. That's how I understand verse 21. And you can think about that. He'll judge fallen angels from heaven's throne, kings of the earth on earth, final judgment, gathered together as prisoners in a pit, shut up in a prison after many days, they'll be punished. Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed for the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders and be, roll right into verse, chapter 25. O oh, oh Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name. An eternal day, I think, is taking place here. I think this cor- corresponds hand in glove with Second Peter 3. I do. You could put those two together. I think Isaiah is writing about what Peter was 800 years later. I mentioned here a couple of things on your study notes. The text is Ezekiel 33, 11. If you, I forgot to put that in, if you want to know where it is. 
God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So even in judgment, God isn't saying, hey, this is great. Oh, yes, joy in justice, but not joy in the personal loss. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that they would turn, turn and, and repent, please. Why will you die, O house of Israel? I mentioned, of course, the eternal state, the sun and the moon. I think that's what verse 25 is about. The moon will be confounded, the sun ashamed. Well, the glory of God will outshine the sun. And I give you some verses from the book of Revelation 18, 21, 22 to describe um, how the light of the glory of God will be the light of heaven. As an aside, I will say, uh, sometimes in discussing creation week, um, I'm still a seven-day creationist. Yes, I've read a bunch of other accounts. I understand um, one of the interesting sidebars in that discussion is sometimes people will point out uh, that the sun isn't created till day four. So that means day one, two, and three had to be in the dark. And I will, you know, if I don't say it out loud, it's, it's in here. Um, have you read the end of the book? Because after the, after the sun, I mean, without the sun, boy, how can God light things? Well, he kind of does all of heaven with the glory that is his. So I got a hunch he could have handled day one, two, and three and before he made the sun. He clearly does fine after the sun is wiped out, maybe a nova or a supernova. God clearly has got the lighting figured out. Uh, I, I have no problem with leaving that in his care. As you come down to the part called responding to God's word, the biggest thing I would want to say to you is this. This day of judgment is indeed coming. Don't doubt it for a minute. How and when? Well, I believe God's people are taken out before that time. But the fact that there is a day of judgment that will cover the whole earth, I think is inescapable from Scripture. And I hope, however you read in time events, I hope that you've trusted Christ as your Savior because he is the only one who can rescue you from that day and from being on the wrong side of accountability to God. He is the only mediator, as we sang earlier, between God and man, mankind. It is Christ. He is the only one because he bore our sin in his body on the cross. You will not be saved any other way from standing on the wrong side of judgment. It is Christ in him alone. And I hope that you know that and believe it and are trusting Christ now as your Savior from sin. There is no other way. Just like the ark, Noah's ark, it, the Bible says there was a day God shut the door. And those who were inside the ark, they were there because they believed God was going to flood the place. And God shut the door. And all those who said, not going to happen, were outside. And it was too late. It was too late. It was too late on that day when God shut the door. Even so now, the day is open. It is, this, it is the day of salvation for any who will trust Christ. Now is the time. Today is the day. If you have never trusted Christ, do it. Do it. Do it. Other things you can read here as you mull them over and discuss them in your community groups. I would love to pray for you. Would you stand with me, please? Our Father and our God, uh, we are sobered by the description of judgment that is to come. Even as we read it, we believe it, every bit of it. That there will be that day when you will hold accountable the entire world and the universe for all those taintedness of sin and rebellion against you, all that, all that flies in the face of your holiness. And that day will be awesome and at the same time terrible. But we indeed will be among those who say, just and true are your ways, O King of the Ages. You are right in what you are doing. And our Father, thank you that you've sent your son Jesus 
to be our sin bearer so that we do not have to be uh, one of those judged before you. We can be among those who are protected by the power of God through faith for that salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And in that, yes, we rejoice. We rejoice. Father, I pray for every person here that they know that they know Christ. Um, You work in us. Do what only you can do to draw men and women to yourself. We ask it of you, even now. In Jesus' name, amen.